Hello and welcome to Africa Inc. This week we put the focus on just some of the business news that's made headlines across sub-Saharan Africa over the past month and how that's influencing macroeconomic sentiment in the region. The stock exchange in the continent's largest economy, Nigeria, has been on a bull run since the start of the year. And Godfrey Mwanza, who's head of Pan-African Equities at ABSA, gives us his take on what's been driving the momentum and highlights some of the stock picks sitting on his radar screen right now. Part of what's been boosting investor optimism, more broadly speaking, has been changing leadership. With new brooms now seemingly set on sweeping clean, regional analyst Motlebane Madupe, who's with think tank political economy Southern Africa, joins us to take a look at what the shifts we've seen in Angola, Zimbabwe and South Africa really means in the context of poor governance structures having acted as one of the biggest threats to fostering investment in African economies. And Kenya's telecommunications industry has just recently held a stakeholder meeting to come up with ways to increase competition in Kenya's ICT space. That's, of course, with Safaricom's dominance coming under much scrutiny and criticism as it manages to muscle other players to the sidelines. So, Director of Competition and Market Analysis at the regulator, Matano Ndaro, will be joining us to take a closer look at the progress it's actually making in leveling the playing field. But first, it's over to Bronwyn, who's standing by with a wrap of the news that's been making headlines. Let's start off with a look at some news from Southern Africa. Zimbabwe is considering a waiver of its indigenization law for platinum and diamonds. According to Bloomberg, it will consider pleas from mining companies to scrap the 51% ownership law. But that's only if they show that they were planning to comply with it in the first place. Zimbabwe has already scrapped the 51% local ownership law for all other minerals. Zimbabwe possesses the second largest platinum reserves in the world. And diamonds are also a key export. Platinum producers like Ang American Platinum have slowed investment plans in the country as a result of the proposed regulation. Mining executives are awaiting an update on the DRC's industry code, but the country's mines minister has declined to clarify its progress. International miners like Glencore and Rangold have raised concerns regarding the legislation with President Joseph Kabila. They fear that higher royalties and taxes will strangle investment and see operations in the country scaled back. Copper production increased close to 7% last year, while cobalt output jumped 15.5%. The DRC is the world's leading source of cobalt and Africa's top copper, copper producer. MTN plans to raise close to $1 billion from share sales in its Nigerian and Ghanaian businesses. According to reports, sources confirmed that Africa's largest mobile operator is looking to dispose of as much as 30% of its Lagos unit and 35% of its operations in Ghana. This would satisfy the terms of a deal the operator struck with the Nigerian government to settle a record fine when it failed to disconnect unregistered subscribers amid a security crackdown in 2016. And the Ghanaian IPO forms part of a deal it reached with the state when it obtained a 4G operating license back in 2015. If successful, the share sales will be the biggest on both the Nigerian and Ghanaian stock exchanges. 
Africa's leading cement maker is flirting with a London listing once again. Bloomberg sources say Dangote Cement is looking to raise $1 billion in a potential IPO. Dangote is apparently in talks with investment bankers for the share sale and a debut Eurobond in a process that could take at least five months. But Dangote says they haven't taken a, de a decision yet. This comes after Dangote abandoned plans to raise about $5 billion in 2010. And cash injection could help further its expansion in sub-Saharan Africa at a time when demand is high due to infrastructure projects. Telcom Kenya is bringing back its mobile money service. The country's only landline operator is expecting a license for the product from the Central Bank of Kenya this month. This comes six months after Telcom dropped the brand name of French telco's giant Orange. That's as part of its new strategic direction when Orange sold its stake. Since then, Telcom has grown its mobile customer base by 1 million to 3.8 million subscribers and aims to hit 4 million in the first quarter of this year. Telcom Kenya says they are ready to start the second phase of expanding their 3G and 4G networks. That's after investing almost $50 million following the Orange breakaway. And Transnet is looking to Africa for growth. South Africa's state-owned port and freight company has flagged 18 African countries, including Senegal and Zimbabwe, for further expansion. According to reports, it's targeting at least five acquisitions on the continent this year and wants to grow its revenue by two-thirds to around $8.5 billion within the next three to four years. Transnet already operates in a few African countries like Botswana and Mozambique. It already has deals in the works, including a stake in a multi-purpose terminal in Mozambique and a recapitalization of the national railways of Zimbabwe. That's a quick look at some of the biggest news that's making headlines across the continent and it's back to you Alicia. Thanks for that, Bronwyn. Well, 2017 was viewed a recovery year on most fronts, and many expect this cyclical recovery to persist and gain momentum over 2018 across the continent. Amidst it all, head of Pan-African Equities at ABSA, Godfrey Mwanza, views Nigeria as possibly the best cyclical story with questionable long-term sustainability. And he joins us now with more insight. Thanks so much, Godfrey, for your time today. So we've had Nigeria Stock Exchange maintaining its rally so far this year, recording about a 12% gain so far, but structurally it lags its counterparts, not only in East Africa, but in North Africa as well, when it comes to executing its developmental agenda. So how are you feeling about the sustainability of the momentum we're seeing right now? Uh, you're absolutely right about the, the contrast between a cyclical recovery and that's been coming from, uh, the key word is reform. They reformed their exchange rate regime, which allowed uh, foreign investors to take advantage of the high yields in the treasury markets and the low valuations in the equity market without fear of not being able to get the money out. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the cyclical recovery. Uh, the cyclical recovery also uh, a reform or at least an improvement in the production of oil in that country, which was stymied by the fact that uh, Delta militants basically prevented uh, the, the pumping of oil uh, in that region, uh, but an amnesty agreement allowed that oil to flow. This is all very positive. Uh, interest rates have come down and assets have rallied. The long-term structural improvement of any economy, whether it's Nigeria or South Africa, is a function of other things than just you know, an exchange rate regime. And one of the main things is policies that allow investment uh, in, in key sectors yeah. uh, that increase productivity. So when you have that productivity improvement plus the population growth, that gives you the long-term structural growth. It's that 
item of investment in productivity enhancing industries that we're not seeing enough of. A country like Nigeria, 400 billion GDP, needs to be investing, uh, you know, even a, a hundred plus uh, billion dollars a year mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in key sectors in order to ensure that long-term structural growth, things like electricity, things like infrastructure, you're not seeing that yet to the tune that we would like to see it before we get become very long-term bulls. And that's why the structural story isn't as rosy. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you've got uh, you know stocks that are sitting on your horizon on account of what is happening right now. Uh, amongst the lot is oil and gas explorer Seplat. So what's the investment case it's putting on the table for you at this stage? Well, Seplat's interesting because it's an indigenous oil and gas producer uh, onshore. There's been a big risk factor applied to that stock's valuation, and that risk factor has been the fact that, as I mentioned before, the Niger-Delta uh, mm -hmm. region um, not having uh, their pipelines fully functional meant that Seplat was constrained in terms of the amount of uh, crude oil that it could export. Uh, that's now gone away, uh, but also they've built their own pipeline, which means if there was any problems to come up in the Niger-Delta uh, ever again, they will have a diversified uh, way of getting their oil to market. So that variability of output was basically reduced, that risk factor is reduced. Uh, also, with the uh, onset of, um, uh, of that pipeline coming back onto stream, uh, and the oil prices rising as they have. We hit a bottom in the oil price in the first quarter of 2016, yeah. uh, and now we're almost twice that. That's also a factor that will improve their cash flows. That combined with the fact that the stock, the stock price is not factoring in these, these variables, it's trading on a very, very low multiple. You also talk about it potentially sitting as a consolidator uh, of the industry. To what extent, and does it have uh, the balance sheet to support that kind of inorganic growth? Well, their balance sheet will be helped by the fact that their cash flows are going to go up uh, substantially with increased production and better oil prices. Uh, and their balance sheet will be able to, they're also in the process of refinancing their debt, which will give them a better capacity to, uh, to use debt finance if they need to, to acquire more uh, oil blocks that are being sold by some of the major companies like whether it's Chevron or Shell or anyone like that. The other stock pick you have is EcoBank. It's trading at a massive discount to book value, but for good reason. I mean, we've seen how hard EcoBank has hit NetBank's earnings in South Africa, for example. What improvements in asset quality are you identifying? So that's a very good point. You, you're going through, uh, you've gone through um, a tough time for EcoBank fixing up their, their bad loans in Nigeria in particular, uh, and also just their high operating cost base. So what we're saying is that it's, it's essentially a turnaround, but the stock price isn't giving, uh, uh, isn't giving the company the benefit of the doubt, management the benefit of the doubt. We are very close to the company and we already see what improvements they're making in terms of bad debt provisioning or recoveries that they're going to see, uh, and of course the cost-cutting measures that they've, uh, that they've undertaken, which are very substantial. You will see a recovery in that stock, and at a price to book of 0.4, if you buy it on the BRVM, uh, it's more than discounted. All the bad news is more than discounted that price. On that note, let's leave it there. Godfrey, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having joined us in studio this evening. Of course, Godfrey Mwanza is head of Pan-African Equities at APSA. Well, it's been a case of out with the old and in with the new in Southern Africa, and we find out if the days of silent tolerance of corruption and poor governance from political leaders is truly behind us straight after the break. So stay with us.
A new dawn of leadership has surfaced in some of sub-Saharan Africa's major economies. Angola, Zimbabwe and South Africa all have new presidents at the helm. And while the clampdown on corruption and poor governance is top of the agenda, Motlabane Modupe, who's regional analyst at Political Economy Southern Africa, joins us to take a closer look at the extent to which this sees their respective economies charting a new course from a growth and investment perspective. Thanks so much, Motlabane, for uh, joining us today. So if we thought that uh, the end of 2017 was a game changing uh, a game changer it's continued into this year with South Africa taking over the baton and then quickly handing that over to Ethiopia with its prime minister standing down uh, following months of intensifying uh, public protest what have you made of the extent to which social and citizenry discontent and very vocal opposition is triggering political change well uh, particularly these three countries that poor governance and corruption was high. So the new leaders are coming in with uh, the bandwagon of restoring the economy and rebuilding it. However, due to certain political uncertainties, there is a positive turn. However, there's slow growth. Mm -hmm. We just need to give them time. For South Africa, particularly, is the issue of land distribution. In Zimbabwe, the upcoming elections, which everyone is a bit skeptical because it's the same party. Absolutely. Let's go yes. into that because while we've got this euphoria uh, taking a hold and a whole lot of optimism around uh, the kind of new course these economies are potentially being set on, uh, the skeptics say that those who were members of the governing party uh, presiding over much of the corruption and poor governance that did come into play are now in control and are only now speaking out against, uh, you know, against what has been at play. So how significant is that for you and how much skepticism do you hold? For now, I say, you know, we need to give them time, but people need to leave the popularity and they need to look at the policies. What are they bringing to the table? Mm -hmm. For uh, our very own president, he's in the forefront of, you know, expropriation without compensation and the whole issue of land distribution. But we still need to, it's very blurry because currently when uh, it's still the willing buy, willing seller option, and that is, it hasn't worked. Uh, and also people, particularly the farmers, they increase the value of the land. So we, it's, we still need time. However, I'm very, very optimistic around it. With what has been said, uh, what kind of tone has it set for sub-Saharan Africa as a whole from an investment perspective where all three territories are quite emphatic about the fact that their countries are now open for business? Okay. Well, with that, it's... It's uh, investors particularly, they were very jittery around it. However, investment flows are going in. People are very optimistic and business confidence has built up. With um, Angola, the mm -hmm. current, the they have removed the currency peg from the dollar. So uh, it's very optimistic and people see growth in that. Uh, for Zimbabwe recently, the president recently got a, got a, a, a loan from China. Mm -hmm which is people are skeptical around it because it's not just a loan, but rather the fine clause. What else is included in there? And we have to uh, see what happens and uh, unfolds. Absolutely. Amongst uh, some of the changes have been the fact that South African nationals no longer require a visa uh, to travel into Angola. Same for Zimbabwe. Do you see South Africa following suit necessarily on that front? Because that could start emboldening uh, the regional growth agenda. Yes, these are 
particular principles uh, we found in, in finding the SADC as well, you know, the regionalism and being one. Mm -hmm. However, with in South African context, uh, our history, we, very, uh, we have a lot of xenophobia. So we have to be very careful around that. And the government cannot just say, oh, here our borders are open. But rather, let's look at internally, how people are going to deal with that internally, because it only, only takes a month. Xenophobia can start like that. Absolutely. That's a very uh, fine line uh, to uh, actually walk at this stage. Uh, what this all suggests, though, is that the politics of fear uh, may finally be withering away. Uh, what country is sitting on your radar screen in terms of where we could potentially see radical political change next? For me, I see Lesotho because there was debacle about the coup and just political uncertainty in the region. So we have to see what happens in there and uh, what unfolds, particularly with the policies. We really need to look at the policies of Lesotho because they're an inland country, so trade mm -hmm. is not so fast. But I see um, change happening there. Well, let's leave it there. Thanks so much, uh, Matlabane, for joining us uh, this evening. Of course, uh, Matlabane Modupe is a regional analyst at Political Economy Southern Africa. And up next, Kenya's bid to try and level the playing field in the telecommunications sector almost saw the splitting of Safaricom from its dominant mobile money platform, M-Pesa. Now that that's off the table, we catch up with the regulator about what measures they're now considering. Kenya's telecommunications regulator is scouting new ways to stimulate competition in the mobile market dominated by Vodacom's associate company, Safaricom. According to Fitch's BMI research, Safaricom holds a 72.6% share of the mobile market in Kenya, while its mobile money service, M-Pesa, boasts an over 80% market share. Plans to separate Safaricom from its mobile money business, M-Pesa, were ditched earlier this year, so Matana Ndada who's Director of Competition and Market Analysis at the Kenya Communications Authority, joins us on the line now to shed more light on some of the options they now potentially have at hand to avoid the threat of market concentration down the line. Thanks so much, Matano, for your time this evening. So you've just undertaken a telecom competition study geared at identifying the relevant markets and sub-markets within the telecom subsector in Kenya. Broadly speaking, what's your assessment of the ICT landscape and I guess the extent to which that's shifted since liberalization in 2000? Well, since we started it to, uh, around uh, 1999, uh, there has been uh, a lot of interest from international investors which culminated in uh, the licensing of the first private mobile operator back in 2000. Mm -hmm which was cancelled, uh, which has metamorphosized, as you know, into different things now, which is uh, Airtel. Uh, the market then was, uh, was fairly balanced, because when Safaricom was eventually 
licensed lets that same year uh, as, as, as it was part and parcel of telecom at the time with about 60% uh, shares uh, owned by Vodafone. Yeah. Uh, the state of play of competition at the time was fairly balanced when you looked at the, the numbers because it was the time during which uh, uh, both entities were, were investing in, in new capital infrastructure. Uh, Telcom Kenya that was uh, then still uh, operating the, the fixed network also joined the fray. But there has been uh, a series of changes in the market over time, especially with uh, the introduction of uh, mobile money transfer services. So let's, let's just hone in on that because you talk about it being a very balanced market back then. And now the big area of debate is, of course, around Safaricom's dominance. So what are you pinning the dominance Safaricom holds in terms of market share down to? Uh, I, 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 I think that is based on uh, partly their, their, their own investment strategies, but uh, also based on the lack of interventions by the regulator over, over a period of time, because back in 2010-2011, uh, we had carried out a similar study which had a raft of uh, remedies that could have perhaps uh, uh, reduced the, the, the impact of concentration that Safaricom was holding. And, and since then, the, the market has become pretty difficult for the others. If you remember, uh, one operator, ESA, yeah. uh, had to exit the market, and, and part of its assets were shared between uh, uh, Safaricom and, and, and Airtel. And, 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 and the ability of, of, of Safaricom to leverage on the mobile money market and the lack of interoperability has made it very difficult for for the other operators to join truck sharing to the market. Okay, so six years on, Matano, I mean, uh, you know, what are some of the options you now have at your, disposable, uh, at your disposal to actually start leveling this playing field somewhat? Uh, one, one, one of the most important, uh, important uh, uh, solutions or, or perhaps uh, remedies is to, 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 to remove the, the barriers that uh, now exist, especially in the mobile money market, uh, in, in terms of, one, making it possible for other mobile money service providers facing the platforms of the, the, the license operators, which then would include both Safaricom and, and, and Airtel, and, and, and Telecom Kenya is trying to reintroduce its mobile money transfer service, so that access to the USSD channel is a lot more, a lot more affordable, and, 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 and interoperability is facilitated, because that is just about the most important uh, medium of accessing, uh, ensuring that customers are able to send money across networks. Yeah. The other element is that we, we, we have to remove the surcharges that are imposed on unregistered customers, especially on, on, on the Safaricom network, because if you look at the cost of sending around this money, 
it is not as much as what is being charged today. And, and again, the other measures would be on the mobile voice services uh, subsector, where one, we would like to uh, perhaps reduce the impact of anti-competitive promotions and, 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 on, on, and uh, the charging of differential tariffs for both on-net and off-net customers yeah. by Safaricom. Okay, so those are some of the trade restrictions that you're looking at imposing. What kind of timeline have you set out, Matano? Because as you say, back in 2011, you had the regulator uh, dropping the ball, essentially. Uh, the timelines for introducing these measures could be within the next uh, two to three months. But again, I must emphasize that these measures are, are, are very proportionate to address the specific competition challenges that have been identified. They are time-bound, mm -hmm. and they would then be reviewed after three or, or, or especially three years for, for the voice services subsector and five years for the sharing of towers in about seven counties in the northern part of the country. So that then at that time we should be able to, to, to ascertain whether or not the measures are working. Okay. The other additional measure I must add is the evaluation of uh, the interconnection regime that is subsisting at the moment. We would need to carry out another cost analysis in the next financial year so that a combination now of, of, of the wholesale interventions and, and, and the retail measures would perhaps enable these other entities to gain additional tracks in the market and, and more importantly, make it possible for those that have uh, big money to come and invest in Kenya. Absolutely. With the market, well, the way it looks like, yeah, it looks a bit closed and not as attractive as it was 15 years ago. Well, let's leave it there, Matano. Thanks so much for having joined us on the line this evening. Matano Ndaro is Director of Competition and Market Analysis at the Kenya Communications Authority. And that's where we leave things with you for this week. But you can catch us at the same time, same place next week. From me, Alicia Sekum, and the rest of the Africa Inc. team, it's goodbye.